Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind, where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. Our network of shows includes... American Biography. The Bohemian Podcast. How Jamaica Conquered the World. The History of the Papacy. The History of England. The History of Alchemy Podcast. Mid-Atlantic. When Diplomacy Fails. 1001 Conversations. History of Anglo-Saxon England. The Secret Cabinet from Germany. Ten American Presidents. The History of Germany podcast. The Agora Podcast Network.com. Listen to Agora today. Hello and welcome to Roundtable Talk. I am Royfield Brown from the podcast Ten American Presidents and I'm sat in London. With me I have Heather. Hello. Heather. The Renaissance English History Podcast. And, and I'm in Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. And... I'm going to say next to Heather, but not exactly next. But in the same country as Heather, we have Travis. Yeah, and I'm I'm from several podcasts, probably, well, History of Germany, for instance, let's say. And I'm in Santa Clara, California. So, yeah. And lastly, but definitely not bringing up the rear, we have Alison. Hi, I'm Alison Gerlach, and I'm host of the podcast, The Unapologetic Capitalist. Round out, I'm just south in Southern California. Brilliant. Now, this month in the Agora Podcast Network, we are featuring the excellent podcast, The History of England by one David Crowther. If you haven't uh, listened to it already, you haven't really listened to one of the best history podcasts out there, we recommend that you get over to iTunes or on Acast and listen to it today. Now, at Agora, we have put together a veritable smorgasbord of talking talent this month for this roundtable talk. We're going to pivot away from talking about the big man or big woman theory of history, and we're going to look at how culture, economics and business has shaped team sport and its institutions on both sides of the pond. Specifically, we're going to look at the sporting traditions of the UK, Europe and the US, and how economic and the social cultures of each area has influenced the way how sport has evolved and how it is consumed. Now, before we start, against my better will and judgment, I will, for our American listeners, refer to the beautiful, perfect game of football as soccer. That is my one concession I'm going to make to this transatlantic craziness today. <laughs> However, for the Brits, that crazy American sport, which is really just a watered-down version of rugby, will be called, counterintuitively, football. But I'm 
going to call sport sport because we all know that sport is singular and plural and there's no such thing as sports say hello everybody welcome on board this is very exciting now i absolutely love and adore soccer and one of the things which i've always been somewhat surprised about is why the americans have been so late to embrace the beautiful game alison why don't you give us your your theories as the reason why the whole rest of the planet plays this sport and the americans have only just in the last maybe 15 to 20 years woken up to it um you know that's a question that so many have been trying to answer in the u.s for so long you know there have been over the last 40 some odd years the efforts to bring soccer and by the way i can appreciate just how challenging the concession of calling it soccer is right um but bringing soccer to the u.s uh it's tried it's stumbled along the way Um, And there have been many sort of theories as to why that is. Uh, Some would say, well, it's a very low-scoring game, but you've got Major League Baseball where the best baseball games are also low-scoring games. There have been a a bunch of sort of red herrings as to why it hasn't caught on. And this was something I actually looked at uh, academically when I was in graduate school uh, back in the mid-'90s. And it was right at the beginning of Major League Soccer. And the whole notion was, how do we avoid the pitfalls of the North American Soccer League that did not uh, survive economically uh, in the U.S.? And really, the challenges in the U.S. are that the media so dominates and drives the popularity of sport in the U.S. that... It's, and it's very heavily dominated by Major League Baseball, by the National Football League, and um, by the uh, National Basketball Association. So we've got the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and then as the fourth really is National Hockey League. And then soccer, unfortunately, comes in at fifth. And with the money that goes in the media, you go to major C's. The media money and dollars sort of gets parsed out between those top three and sometimes fourth sport, and there just isn't anything left for soccer. The other challenge is that the U.S. has really not been able to develop major uh, soccer stars from its mm-hmm. own, which is that's really the astonishing part given the breadth and depth of athletic talent that is in the US. However, mm-hmm. in the US again, the certainly the financial drive and the motivation for youth sports and that sort of development again has to compete with kids going towards football, American football and going towards yes. basketball and going towards baseball and other sports. I, I'm going to jump in. Otherwise, your, question, your I'll answer go on is going to be so all-encompassing. You're going to answer all of, my, all of my questions. You know what I forgot to do, everybody? I, I'm presupposing that everybody even likes football. So um, who do we all support? I'll, you know, uh, Travis, you go first. As far as, uh, as, far as soccer? Oh, yes, I made that mistake. Soccer, sorry. <laughs> So that's so that's a tough one. I, I would say my first favorite soccer team was um, was when I grew up in Germany, and and it would be eighteen sixty Munich, and I think they're like a second or third 
league now. I don't even. Yeah, but otherwise, I'd have to say so. Like most you recently, I lived in Prague. Soccer so it would be... you. Huh? You're a soccer sophisticate. In the... and, oh, I'm and sorry. I, and I'm sorry. Today. They're a, they're at zweite liga in the Bundesliga. Um, but recently, I lived in Prague, so I'd have to say it's definitely the Bohemians. 1806 Bohemians. Okay. All right. And uh, what about you, Heather? Um, so when I lived in London, I lived in Finsbury Park across the across the train station or across the train tracks from the old Arsenal stadium. So there were a lot of Arsenal fans around me, but my best friend at the time was a Tottenham supporter. And so I went to a lot of Tottenham matches and learned all the songs and I got into Tottenham. And then my husband, when I married him, he's really into sports, but he didn't know who to support. And he said, oh, I'll latch on to Tottenham as well, because why not? And because um, Tottenham is wonderful. And so we are a Tottenham family um, now, but we live in Spain. Um, so we also are a Barcelona family. That's interesting, because Tottenham are kind of perennial, slight underachievers. So not so, this year, they're not. This year, they're not at all. They are, they are second in, in the Premier League. Um, and Alison, what's, what's your poison? Who's your team of choice? Uh, my team of choice, um, I uh, also do enjoy Bundesliga. And I have to say, I'm a Bayern Munich Oh, no! Uh, fan. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, I got it. You know what? I got to go. I'm sorry. I got it. I can't do this. I, I was this... concerned about bringing that up. I, I appreciate their analytics actually and how well their front office uses data to make thoughtful decisions about putting their best 11 on the field um and then of course i also are we jumping sport here we're going from soccer to baseball it sounds like to me (laughs) well i think that baseball got a lot of the um I think glory for bringing analytics to seeing how they can field a, a winning team, but really all sport has varying levels of analytics and how they choose to use those analytics to increase the value of their franchise. Um, okay. Some some do it better than others. So. All right. Well, I'll, I'll just quickly jump in and say I'm a Birmingham City fan. And I think this kind of goes to the heart of one of the key differences, which at least I perceive that there is between American and uh, UK sport, is that us Brits absolutely adore the underdog and seem to be averse to winners. So I, tell me if I'm wrong, if this condition exists in American sport. But sport fans over here take a perverse pleasure in supporting a team which is rubbish, which actually underachieves, never wins anything, and you prove your bony fides by being a supporter of that team. Now, do you Americans suffer from the same trait? Who wants to jump in? There's the Boston Red Sox people. (laughs) I'm in San Diego area where we have not had a championship team i would say we are definite sufferers but at least in my area there doesn't seem to be quite as much pride in the long time suffrage because we will obviously (laughs) we're willing to see our teams leave the city for greener pastures well that takes me on to another kind of cultural uh bone which is the whole kind of franchise notion of of sport uh but but travis 
you said that you supported 1860 uh, Munich, which is the second team of Munchen. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. And, and in baseball, I'm, <laughs> I don't know if I should say this, I might lose some listeners, but I'm a Red Sox fan. And that happened by living, by growing up and living in Europe for most of my life and kind of looking at baseball and thinking, well, the one team I hate is the Yankees. So I'm just going to pick their, you know, their main rivals, their main, and again, like totally the underdog. They totally sucked for my whole lifetime, except for, you know, one year. And I was just like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, I just, like, I kind of picked it based on that kind of, so... But also, 1860 was the same way. I grew up in Munich and was like, well, I definitely hate Bayern Munich, so um, I'm the other guys, you know. Even if they never win, doesn't matter. Got to stand by them. So, yeah, I don't know. And, but and, that, yeah, I'm the wrong person to ask because, I, I, you know, I don't know. Well, you, yeah, because you're not really an American if you spend all that's that right, time in, that in sense, Europe. No, like, yeah, I, I would pick the you're, underdog. You're atypical. Yeah, you, know, you might as well be asking a German if you they usually kind pick of, the underdog. <laughs> so, so, Heather, for me, you have... Let's take this season out of it. You know, the last time that Spurs won, Tottenham won the championship was 1961 and they did the doubles. So that was a few years ago. And they won a few Mm -hmm. FA Cups and won UEFA Cup since. But fundamentally, they're in the shadow of Arsenal and now Chelsea. So to me, you support um, a real team, a team that doesn't taste success all the time. And then you've spoiled it by saying Barcelona. Well, so here's the thing. I am married to a sports fan, and I hear that he tells me, and he tells me a lot. So I know that Chris Gale scored a century against England today in cricket in some something, oh. right? And so I know these bits and bobs. I know that he supports Barcelona because he likes to watch beautiful football, and he thinks that it's beautiful mm-hmm. football. I support Tottenham because I like the songs. <laughs> <laughs> and I like the Tottenham history. I like the kind of culture. Yeah, can I just jump in? I'm telling yeah. you, Birmingham City have better songs. We have are, are, well, songs in the Tottenham songs. You know, I've just spent a lot of time at White Hart Lane, so what I it's what I know. So I, I um, think this podcast just turned into a, a singing competition. It possibly <laughs> like the yeah, kind of culture of Tottenham. In? I'm telling you, Birmingham yeah. City have better songs. We have better songs. Are, are, well, songs. you know, um, I sp- I've just spent a lot of time at White Hart Lane, so. No, it's what I it's what I know. So um, I, th- I think this podcast just turned into a singing a singing competition. <laughs> well, the, the Birmingham City song is "Keep Right On to the End of the Road." That that is is our song, but I'm not going to give you a rendition of that now. But I think interestingly, that for me brings up another difference between U.S. and U. UK sport and tell me if I'm wrong specifically we're talking about the soccer here so soccer started what was really codified in the 1860s and was started uh, for the most part by churches so it's the church team so a team like Sheffield Wednesday are called Sheffield Wednesday because they're played on a Wednesday and a lot of te- like Manchester United were called Newton Heath initially so these were neighborhood teams for the most part, built around uh, churches in working-class neighbourhoods. Um, how much, how different is, uh, let's say, supporting, I don't know, the San Diego Chargers? Is that a working-class passion? Are there, do the Chargers or the, um, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, do they have their own distinctive songs? Is it still rooted in class, the way that football 
sorry, soccer in is in its roots in the UK is. Who but wants that's to go first? Something first. that's actually really important, um, and something I was discussing when I was at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference this past weekend is the American football. Some of the earliest teams really were sort of similarly uh, grown. You've got the Green Bay Packers uh, and the Chicago Bears. The Green Bay Packers, they were a bunch of meat packers, and that's why they got their name, and they're very community-born and built and have a serious history and working-class following. And you have several of the really old uh, National Football League teams are like that. And one of the biggest challenges today is the fact that those very fans are sort of now being priced out of the market because ticket prices to actually attend a game is become prohibitively expensive. And yes. so the very fans that created and cultivated and are part of the histories of the teams that are very successful are sort of losing their very core fans that got them there to the first place. The challenge of that on the flip side is the people who can afford to go there, the higher socioeconomics, actually prefer not to go to the game live. Right. So, you know, they prefer to go at home. Yeah. So it's this real conundrum in American sports. I'd like to add to that. How to build to that. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so from from kind of what I've seen, I would say American sports is definitely also a working class phenomena, but it's not. I mean, it's it goes everybody likes sports or they don't. It's not class dependent by any ways. But people that are that are priced out of going to the stadiums and that has happened and that is really unfortunate, but they don't miss out on the sports because of it. They just go enjoy it at a sports bar in front of a beer or, you know, my barber is always watching a game because he's got money on it. And he I mean, he's watching games all day. That's what he does. But he probably doesn't go to a stadium very often if, you know, a couple times in his life. It's at that aspect of how you watch a sport, like how you watch a game is super different which means when you brought up songs that's just not seen here in that way because we're not sitting in the bars singing those songs um probably not even all rooting for the same team so like i mean i've seen it in american bars where a group of brits or, or irish or whatever walk in and will sing a song and that's just they'll have the whole attention of the bar because we've never seen that before you know, we just think it's the greatest thing ever and uh, in, in Europe. So it's just, it's the same people watching different sports and differently, but it's, you know, it's the same people enjoying it for the same reasons that they always have. But interestingly, right. though, um, uh, Travis, in Germany, because Alison was talking about um, you know, the prices to attend the matches, German soccer yeah. matches are notoriously cheap, aren't they? And, and actually it's, the clubs yeah. really do still embrace the, the working class roots of the teams and the prices are Absolutely. priced accordingly. Yes. You, you go to half empty stadiums. Well, so especially Czech Republic, you go to a stadium, no problem getting in and it would cost you in, in you know, American terms like $10 or something. And you just wander in and these are the national teams. Granted, Czech Republic's a small country, but as far as the per capita, like the sports fan base is just as much as any other country. I mean, just, you know, everybody loves soccer and, and, and there the... it's a it's a different type of thing going to a game. Different how so? Like, Czechs have hooligans? 
check like there it's a very much like go with your buddies and drink beer and go regularly so in america mm. it's really an event it's a father son or you know couple t- maybe once a year but not even normally not even um, unless you're really enthusiastic about it. So maybe once a couple times a lifetime. So you're not going with your mates and, and, and you know, drinking pints there and then beating up the tourists afterwards. You're, um, <laughs> you know, you're going with your kids and kind of sitting at the ballpark for the day. And it's probably the kid might do it just that one time in his whole lifetime. But he'll be a Cardinals fan for the rest of his life. Totally different. Totally different. Well, let let me add one more. There's one more variable I want to sort of throw in. um, And this has to do with why soccer and even Major League Baseball are a little bit different than American football NFL. Yeah, I don't want to compare totally apples and oranges. Yes. Well, but there's one variable that is very different, and that's the number of games available to go to. In the National Football League, there are only eight home games a season Mm -hmm. so that is really highly the number of people that support the team go to games and foster that kind of community um, is far more dependent on whether or not the team is winning or losing however in soccer or major league baseball where you have many many games Mm -hmm. um, whether or not your team is on top or not uh, is less a factor and whether or not you want to participate with the team. What's right. more of a factor is your accessibility to relate to the players and to feel like you're a part of uh, that organization. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a season with many, many, many opportunities to attend a game, then to sort of get back to Royfield's point a while ago, you're willing to put up with the fact that your team never wins. Uh, As a Padres fan and a season ticket holder, I know the the ones who really want to participate in the fandom, hey, the Padres have gone to the World Series twice in my lifetime. They've never won, but they've gone twice in my lifetime. I feel like that's more than I could ever expect. Oh, can I just okay. ask a question, just talking about just attending the games and stuff. Mm-hmm. How how much do you guys think, Americans, think that fandom in in America with teams has a lot to do with just how people move around. I'm thinking specifically San Diego. So my husband's from San Diego too, from Lemming Grove. And, um, he, you know, he mentions that when he goes to San Diego football games, like half the teams support somebody else. Cause so many people in, right. in San Diego are from someplace else. Right. So there's so much moving around of people and it's like our culture is, you know, you, you move around so more than in other mm-hmm. places. I think that's like a really uniquely American kind of thing that go west I, and, and on, stuff on like point, that because i live in santa clara so when the super bowl was here um for for a german podcast i went down there with a camera and right before the game took you know walked all around it and took pictures of the or took video of the fans and everything and uh, and talked german i mean it's on youtube but i talked german and, and i was just like where did all these bronco and and uh, carolina fans come from like just out, you know, they filled a stadium and it was just all this, this blue and orange and um, just like, wow, like, oh yeah, because and half of them were local and they, you know, they just, oh, they just came out of the woodworks yeah. and they're everywhere. You know, all teams, they're spread out across the states. The fans are. Um, well, so there's, totally a couple of, there's a couple of reasons for that in the U.S. And you're right, Heather, it is a very unique uh, American 
um, transient population. Um, however, I, and the teams people move. move for jobs but hang on to the teams that they yeah. love. For yep. instance, mm-hmm. I grew up in San Diego, but I had moved away for 20 years. Well, interestingly, mm-hmm. and it's taken me a, a long time actually to work this out, but the UK is becoming more like America. And there is, well, specifically, let's talk about England, because the UK is strange in that we, Scotland has its own professional, sorry, soccer league, so does Northern Ireland, which the the, the league in Northern Ireland isn't actually professional, but then England and Wales have its own kind of combined league. So, specifically, if we're talking about England, you notice that the teams which are in the north of the Midlands to the north are much more hometown teams, with the exception, actually, of Manchester United. So everybody in Newcastle supports Newcastle United, everybody in Sunderland supports Sunderland, everybody in Leeds supports Leeds. The further south you get, um, then that starts to change. So my hometown of Birmingham, um, we have two and a half teams, professional teams that play there. I say half because West Bromwich Albion is geographically across the border of the next town. So one third of that ground is in the city of Birmingham and two thirds are in the borough of Sandwell, which is West Bromwich. But we have Aston Villa and and Birmingham City. And you will find that there are kids walking around the city of Birmingham that have Manchester United shirts on, as well as Chelsea, as well as Birmingham Mm -hmm. and Aston Mm -hmm. Villa. That doesn't happen north of Birmingham. The further south you get in the UK, it's more of a a free-for-all. And that is because of transitory movements of working migration. That actually... Yes. And it's exactly the same thing that you're you're talking about. And conversely... But what's different... Mm-hmm. Go on. Are you, are you going to talk about franchises? Because like Bayern well, Munich's I, never going to move to Hamburg. You know what I mean? Well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll come on to that. But just just to finish the whole kind of an analogy yeah. with how the English league is set up in terms of local support. So Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea, uh, and now Manchester City, but to a much lesser degree, are kind of super national teams in that Manchester United's fame and success has gone way beyond uh, just the UK, but is global, just like Barcelona would be in Real Madrid, AC Milan, etc. So you will see Manchester United shirts all throughout the south of England. And everybody in Manchester will tell you, real people in Manchester support Manchester City, not Manchester United. But this movement of of labour has definitely led to the growing of sport franchises, and I kind of hate that expression, um, outside of the geographic locations of where that team actually comes from. But you, Travis, have then led me on to this other kind of massive bugbear that people in Europe just do not understand with American sport, is how teams can move. Uh, You know, because, you know, Mm. Birmingham City... Well, no one would want Birmingham City to, you know, you know, to say, if Birmingham City tomorrow said, we're going to move to Oxford, Oxford would say, no, you're not. We don't want you. So it's, it's not even an option. But the, the Football League actually and the FA actually have a rule that teams cannot move more than, I think, 35 miles from their historical home. So it's actually ah, okay. not, so that's actually not an option. Mm-hmm. But also, right. one of the things which I've always kind of been really aware of with American sport 
the Green Bay Packers, this may be a bad example to go to the Green Bay Packers, because they're so rooted in Green Bay. But let's say the yeah. Dodgers or the, let's say the Chargers. That, there is a team which has, uh, starts off with the name of a town or a city, then it says the Chargers. And actually, the Chargers bit is more important than the city because the Chargers can keep moving. Whereas in, in UK yep. and European sport, it's all about the geographic location. Whether you're called City yeah. or United is so secondary. And that's one of the big differences right. between US and UK and European sport. Yeah, it is the Munich Football Club. It can't be anywhere else. Um, I I was going to earlier mention another kind of difference is that um, part of the reason that, that, you know, because when you first asked, like, why did soccer come so late to the States? Another reason, just exactly what was said about the media giving attention, um, then to complete that cycle, because it it was a cycle why it didn't happen. Like it was um, the, the other half of that story is the schools. So in Europe, you have a football club for different ages, but it's it's um, location dependent and it's independent of the school system. And in America, you got, you know, like my high school, we were the Raiders and the other high school was across town. And it didn't matter if it was football or baseball or what it was. We were always the Raiders and um, the the. The best athletes, the well, not the best, but the biggest athletes and, and, you know, fastest big guys were on the football team. The tallest, fastest were on the basketball team. Um, the, the strongest and, you know, what was left over was baseball. And our swim team was bigger than soccer. Um, you know, and, and so, right. like, well, not only is it media attention, but we're so locked into those sports. And Europe, it's, it's locked into location. So the whole, you know, for us, then you, you're, if you're great, if you're a great uh, high school player, you go to college somewhere totally different. And you, you change your jersey and uh, you play for a totally different team already semi-professionally. Whereas in Europe, like a, a, a university scholarship for being a great uh, baseball player or, I mean, even soccer player is just strange. Because the universities well, don't have teams like we do. Right. And that's a, an issue in youth soccer because now youth soccer in the U.S. has moved away from playing for your high school, which for uh, football, American football, yeah. baseball, and uh, basketball, you're, that's where you get recruited for college. Yep. And the path for a lot of youth athletes is the hope that they'll be good enough that it might help pay for their college. Yeah. That's a huge incentive system where soccer, soccer has now moved away from playing in the schools and now the top soccer players make, hope to make an academy team and that's separate of your school. However, the path for a really excellent soccer player, um, some Americans would really love to see at least a big group of them that that helps pay for college perhaps, but that's not the path to professional soccer. Professional it's, soccer doesn't yeah, necessarily much want to more see... European path to professional sports, right? Um, because yeah, eighteen yeah. to twenty-one are your prime years. They want you. It's, they don't want you playing for university. They want you in uh, right. It's, training. Well, for yeah, the it's more like um, American athletics and less like American sports like baseball and football. Because if you want to be, if you want to be a gym, if you want to be, a, 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 you know, go to the Olympics, then you'll be on your high school team. But then you'll, you know, go off and get you know you'll go off and be professional and uh, won't worry about scholar i mean it's a totally different path then yeah heather 
Did you play、Hi. a high school sport? Because this is another key difference、mm. between、um, sport, both sides of the Atlantic. Oh, yeah, I played basketball. Okay. And I suppose this is going to be ultimately aimed at you, Alison, to explain the business of、um, American sport. But, Heather, could you explain to me the pathway of. Um, if you're playing basketball at school,、um, how then you could have then potentially progress to become a professional player? You know, let's say if you were male, you know, just for the UK listeners,、mm-hmm. tell us what that progression actually is.、Um, it's interesting that you mentioned basketball because basketball is one of the hardest paths to take because there's only five on the floor when you play on a team、mm-hmm. of basketball, whereas in football, You can have a bench holding 52, 50, a roster holding 52, 53 people.、Um, the path to any of the major league sports is, is similar, except for soccer. Soccer is different. First of all, the regions of the US where sports, in major league baseball, I think something like 60 years, this is from a couple years ago, but 60 or 70% of the current Major League Baseball players came from only three different regions.、Uh, one of those is Southern California, the other one's Atlanta, and then、uh, the Dominican. And if you think about that, that, how much the region you're in really will help promote you in a certain sport,、yeah. um, you know, that's, that plays a big role. So, You know, basketball, like, I think they have a lot more traction in a lot of more urban areas because you don't need quite as much real estate to play basketball. It's not as, there's not a lot of expensive equipment. And so the availability to find really exceptional talent in many, many different locations. The other thing about basketball is you can play indoors. So no matter where you are in the US, you can play year round. Game like soccer or even baseball, for instance. You're going to go to places like Southern California because you, even Little League, for instance, you can start playing at the end of January, early February here. So, but the path generally does start with the, the youth sports,、um, and different regions have different levels of, I will call it, insanity in terms of if you've got really insane parents and they make sure you get into the right clubs and the right places,、um, you know, it can put you on a path. There's a significant drop off in youth sports around the age of 14, where kids who are really into it from you know, age five, six, seven, and up, they will drop off at 14. A lot of that has to do with that's when they enter high school.、Yeah. And either their high school is big on that sport and maybe they're not competitive enough, or their parents were really pushing them and they decide to drop off. But, but you know what, though, Alison, this for me is one of the fundamental differences、um, of. European sport and US is, is that we have a pyramid over here. And we, if, I wanna, if I am a 14 year old and I'm good at soccer or rugby or cricket,、um, this has got nothing to do with college stroke university.、Mm-hmm. I am I'm good at what I do and I play for my school. So that's the same, same in America. Then I'll probably pay for my county or my district. 
um, which is uh, obviously a kind of a larger unit than just my school. But I'm recognised by all, all counties within the uh, within uh, within England are affiliated to the Football Association. If I'm specifically talking about soccer now, so I'm good at football. Um, sorry, soccer. Um, this is so hard. I'm good at soccer. <laughs> So I'm good. I and then I play for the next unit up, which is the county, which is affiliated to the football association. And then I maybe get scouted by a professional football team, and I sign schoolboy forms at maybe fifteen, sixteen, which mean that um, I go and train with this professional football outfit. If I am good, and somebody uh, like okay. somebody yeah. like Wayne Rooney actually made his uh debut for everton while still actually at school so he's 15 and, and some days old um that is highly un- highly unusual but you know it's not not at all impossible and a few professional football players would have started playing for a for a professional team while they're still physically at school they are 15 16 between right. the ages of 15 and 18 i'm training with with, with the pros and then there's a massive weeding out process. So um, maybe 10% of that intake then uh, will be offered professional um, forms, uh, professional contracts, sorry. And then they become professional footballers. However, and then this is the other key difference between um, UK, European sport, and then with US sport, North American sport is... If I then fall out of that system, as maybe 90% of 18-year-olds do, they don't get taken on by Manchester United or Chelsea or Everton or even Birmingham City or Tranmere Rovers. Because there is a pyramid system within all of European sport, i.e. the top division of English hey. football is has contains Manchester United then my team Birmingham City is the next pyramid down but there's promotion and relegation at the end of every year I can end up playing as most decent soccer players would for a team which is maybe in tier 10 tier 9 so that is what we call the non-league which means Mm non-professional which means I have my job I'm a postman I'm an engineer I'm a a baker, I'm whatever the heck I am, but at the weekend I turn out for this team. And that team still has the ability to progress up... um, They're still in the system. They're still in the system. And I hate that about American sport, that it is just a franchise that rich people just buy their way in. You know, the NFL says we have another two franchises and we're looking at this media market and we want to put a team here. Whereas the the Mm -hmm. rest of the world has this totally egalitarian system whereby if Travis and I want to start a team up in Norwich tomorrow, we can start that team and maybe in 20 years' time we'll be in the Premier League. Not because we've bought our way in, but because we keep on getting promoted year after year because we're good. And for me, that sounds so classically meritocratic and American. And I don't understand really why American sport is so locked off to promotion, relegation, and into and uh, to that kind of way of doing things. Yeah, because it was all like that. I mean, you know, when baseball and football started, they all started that way. I mean, uh, 
basketball was maybe the one oh, I'm going to mess this up now, but I think basketball almost kind of had an academic start. Like it was invented in a school or something. Um, but baseball and football were played by kids in fields kind of thing. And, um, the first professional teams were, you know, factory workers on their lunch break or what have you kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it just the, you know, it, it's America corporations took over and people saw profit and turned it into this huge, massive industrial complex that is our, our sports. But yeah, it had very similar origins and there's still parallels to like the recruitment process and all that as far as scouts and, you know, scouts going on out to, to small high school teams and that kind of thing. But it is totally different. Once you're out, you're, you'll no longer, you'll never be a professional athlete. There's, you know, it's a pipe dream. There's no way to get back in. Yeah. You can find, you can found your own team and play baseball on weekends, but there's no way you're going to compete against a minor league team or, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just a totally different, totally right. different I mean, kind of. Yeah. Right. Baseball still follows what the original path of having a farm system and teams have minor league systems. There's mm-hmm. single yeah. A, double A, triple A, yes. you know, yeah. earning your. And the one thing that I really enjoy when I go to a baseball game and part of why I love the Padres is because most of the time on the Padres, you're seeing a whole bunch of guys who are fighting. They, uh, you know, aren't being paid millions of dollars. They just come up from, you know, triple A because someone got injured and this is Mm -hmm. their shot. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to me, that's what makes sports so compelling to watch, to go back way from the beginning, Roy Field, when you talk about rooting for the underdog, someone such as myself who really does appreciate all the analytics of the fact that sport is the one place where it can defy all the odds. Alison, Alison, it so doesn't. Right, and listen, I am a big fan of so many things about American culture. Big fan, big fan. Right, but there is a perfect kind of circle which is drawn around the way that soccer is constructed in Europe. So, as I've said before, so we have promotion and relegation, which I know happens in some kind of minor sport leagues in, in, in America. So it's not a total anathema. But so you have Manchester United, uh, Arsenal, Chelsea and the top 20 teams play each other. Then the next 20 teams play each other. And at the end of that season, the bottom three of the Premier League get relegated down right. into the into the mm-hmm. championship, which is the next league. And it goes yeah. on and on and on until yeah. you get down to the level of uh, p- pub teams. It get, it goes down to that level. Yeah, so I right. can have a beer belly, and I'm totally out of shape, but I will turn up every every Saturday or Sunday for my pub team, and it goes down to that level. So there might be, and I I, I don't know if anyone's ever counted, but there might be even thirty five levels of English football. But but here is the beautiful thing, and 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 for me, there's much more romance in European sport because of this, because we have a league and we have a cup, and it seems to me that in American sport, you bastardise the two, so you have some kind of round robin system where teams kind of play each other, uh, and yeah, then you have some kind of playoff, 
So, mm-hmm. and I explain this to people, to Americans all the time. I get misty-eyed. I get so romantic. So there is the league, but then there is the cup competition, which runs right. alongside, so that the amateur teams, the post, the, the, the postmen, the bakers, the candlestick makers, and it's so classically romantic, can enter this knockout competition, which starts actually in September. But progressively, with each round, um, bigger and more professional teams come into it. So whereby, in January, it's always the first Saturday in January, is the third round of the FA Cup, even though there are many more rounds beforehand, there's qualifying rounds. And you'll always have five or six um, non-professional teams. And they go into this hat and they mm-hmm. can play Manchester United at home. And and, mm-hmm. and and it's and it's so exciting because and and, and yeah. in the U in the US we do have one thing that comes close to that kind of you know romantic uh, college basketball and uh, you know college basketball has more than I think there's 243 Division One uh, college basketball teams in the US. You know, there's big colleges that pour tons of money into their sport program. And then there's tiny, you know, like the Ivy League colleges, which are forbidden from even granting sports scholarships. So you've got all those teams that get to play against the top universities in this wonderful couple weeks. That can happen. Yeah. You can have crazy underdog teams in March Madness. And it's just like, wow. Yeah. I mean. That's no, true. no. Two years ago, uh, Mercer uh, beat Duke University in the, one of the opening rounds. Yeah. Okay. March Madness is out. Another uh, thing uh, I thought you were going to say, Royfield, earlier, um, mm-hmm. is that in Europe, I, um, you can, if you don't make it to the top leagues in the UK, let's say, you can still go off and you know have a shot at uh, a league in Greece or somewhere else, yes. and and that kind of thing. Which is another point I was going to make is that. Um, we import many players, but there's not, you know, there's, it's, it's not as like organized and systemic as in Europe where you just have people from all over. So that pyramid, that meritocracy, it doesn't just, I thought you were going to make the point too, that it doesn't just go across the UK, but it actually extends across the so, EU. Well, it, it, to be honest with um, you, it because extends. Because it's naturally kind of, you know, teams but, compete like that. But, but Travis, it actually, and this is going to come on to my you know my next kind of major talking point but that meritocracy extends throughout the rest of the world to the to exclusion really of america however uh, the mls is now within yes. the feeder system of, of world football it is so david beckham played for manchester united obviously an english team he played for mm-hmm. ac milan he played for real madrid he went to yep. la galaxy and then he ended up by paying for Paris Saint-Germain. Okay, so uh, so there is an idea. So yes, to back up your point, though it's not really making the same one because he wasn't, let's say, a player who failed at any net specific level. So then had to go to right. a minor league like Greece or Poland. Yeah, right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But like, I guess overall, I was thinking it's just way more intertwined with the rest of the world. The MLS is not just necessarily a place if you don't make the top, but it's a place for a lot of the Europeans to extend their career another few years. Mm-hmm. A- absolutely. And specifically, it's um, a lot of 
kind of old, slightly older players, um, specifically kind of Italians, kind of like to go and and play for one of the New York teams because it's seen as being incredibly um, attractive. But and it, and it's a very positive thing for Major League Soccer because they can bring their fan base to the U.S. Uh, soccer system. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Now. Yeah. Be- before true. we before we kind of start to to wrap this up, this kind of another thing, and and Travis, I think you kind of mentioned it before by saying if you were tall and fast, you played basketball. If you were big and fast, you played uh, football. In in the states, um, and when I sit down and think about it, that you know, why is it that American culture is so I was going to say ubiquitous. It's not quite, but U- U.S. popular culture has such a stranglehold on the world's imagination. So we watch American movies. You know, everybody the planet over dances to Beyonce and uh, etc. And you know, you can go to a shanty town in Kampala and hear hip hop, or you can go to mm-hmm. to Japan and there's going to be somebody rapping on the mic in Japanese. Why, Why is, is it? it- that America has, for the most part, failed, with the exception maybe of basketball, has failed to export its major sport around the world. Ooh, now hold on a second. So why why has America... Now, because baseball, it depends. If you go to Japan or, or Dominican Republic or Mexico, um, it's wildly successful there. American football is interestingly... The interest is growing in... I went to a Munich Cowboys game once. Um, but overall, you're right. I think it's... Yeah, I mean, good question. The whole world already has soccer, I, and it's entrenched. But, just but, like... But, okay, well, but let, I, let's I move... One second, Alison. Just before you jump in, Alison. Right, because you know you're going to hit me with facts, Alison. I'm just talking <laughs> anecdotes, right? Um, let's move this away from soccer, Okay. There is a Rugby Union World Cup, which is played good, competitively yeah, by 15 odd countries. There is a Cricket World Cup, which is played by competitively yes. by some 10 other countries. You know, the, you know, I could kind of go on, you know, with the minor kind of uh, sport, which is the, the rest of the world seems to have embraced well, a certain yeah. level of team sport and it's interchangeable. And when I look at American sport, it's almost hermetically sealed. Yes, there's a little bit of baseball in Japan and a little bit of baseball in Well, Cuba. you mean about like the world, the world championship kind of things, though? That has always struck me as very strange. Well, well if, before we get onto the whole kind of the we got, world series. We got series basketball at the and, Olympics. Yeah. But, but, I mean. But, you know, America, American sport is fundamentally played just by Americans. And I struggle to really understand, and this is a question really well, for you, Alison, the reasons why, if you can export your culture everywhere, the way that you dress, the what your movies, yeah, your TV... Okay, so so here's, here's my opinion on that. I think, okay. I think there is an answer, kind of. And part of it is that... So part of it is that what you said about... Um, it is it is a franchise. It is a corporate kind of endeavor to some degree, and it just happens to be an American one, maybe. But I think on the other hand, it's just um, Americans are totally fine with that, with everything you just said. Like Europeans are so much more outward facing, kind of you know looking at what else goes on in the world, whereas Americans 
like we fully we call it the World Series on purpose because because to us it is like it's I mean I don't mean to sound you know like insulting to to somebody or American else, exceptionalism else. is that what it it's, is? Yeah. Well, it's I mean, just we don't see it. it. Like you know, it's just I like well, of course. In. Uh, go ahead, you know, go ahead. Not, yeah. not pester the conversation with all my facts and all. No, no, no. I want to hear, hear this actually. Yeah, go ahead. Um, the, there is a, such an excellent point there. And one of them is um, Americans were incredibly egocentric. And whereas. I didn't want to say it like that, but. <laughs> uh, I'm happy to say it like that. Inward facing. I would just, you know, we don't look outside of our borders. Geographically, we're very different. Um, I yeah. used to work for an investment bank in Europe. I was in Geneva, Switzerland. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just going on a run outside my apartment, I one time accidentally ended up in France without, you know, any of my passport or papers. <laughs> right, I yeah. can't be in the, for me, where I am, um, I pretty much have to get on a, an airplane just to go to another state let alone another country. Although I am quite close to Mexico, I can drive there pretty easily. But if we had, if our states were all different countries, I think that we might have a far more cosmopolitan outlook like Europe has. You know, Europe Mm -hmm. is much more, uh, at least my understanding, and if you look at the data of what people are willing to accept and an adventure and be a part of different cultures, other countries, and especially European countries, Latin American countries, even they're far more accepting of other cultures than America is by Americans are incredibly uncomfortable with things outside of their culture. But and Allison, part of it geographically, the it, other way around, Allison, Allison. it was the other way around. Exactly. Why? I'm asking, why can't you, why haven't you exported well, it? Well, then the flip side, the part of that is because Americans love a show pony and they love to have their own show ponies. There you and go. So yeah. That's that's, yeah. And it's because they, the athletes that get picked. It's not our show. Academy teams, the way the tryout process works, they pick show ponies. But data yeah. shows that that's not what a great athlete is. A great athlete, especially at the youth level, is a good decision maker, is incredibly fit, uh, is speedy. And all fitness and speed and decision making are all uh, greater drivers towards a successful athlete than skill. But we do, hmm. that's the American sort of you know way. You know I you're think big, you're fabulous. You're, you know, I'm going to teach you like I can, you know, teach you know, skills. I now I completely and utterly agree with you. And that, and I, I am no big evangelist for football. Sorry for soccer. Keep on slipping into that. <laughs> um, I am, n- well, I am an evangelist for soccer. I think it is the most perfect, egalitarian, and simple of games. And I think one of the reasons why soccer has been embraced the globe over and increasingly now in the States is because you don't need to be freakishly tall to play it. You don't need to be freakishly fast to play it. You can be of average size. You can be of average speed and you can play this game. And, and And that's what's always struck me with the exception of maybe baseball. I was so going to say baseball's a lot like that. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, with the exception of baseball, you have to be a freak of nature 
to play American sport. Professionally, yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Mountains. Yeah. Yeah. And like a freak of nature or a just absolute phenom, which is very rare. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So one of the things which you really notice about American sport, whether it's you watch the NFL or specifically basketball, is the amount of African-American players. And though in in soccer, you know, my, my favourite uh, team sport, and with a much lesser degree in rugby and definitely in cricket, there are um, non-white players in Europe. Specifically uh, in cricket, there'll be a lot of uh, people from the Indian subcontinent or West Indian, so there will be there will be black players, and definitely there are in football. Um, there is no European sport which is so dominated by uh, by black people or, or you know African Americans the way that there is in in basketball. Um, Alison, when did basketball become so synonymous with urban and America, and why did that happen? Um. You know, one of the big draws of, again, being able to play basketball is it's very easy to play. It's, you don't need to field big teams. Um, you know, baseball, you can't just grab a couple of friends and play a meaningful baseball game. You need a certain number of players. Basketball, playing one-on-one, -on -one, playing on a half court, playing, it's very easy to play in smaller spaces uh, or and to field just a pickup game. It's one of the easiest sports to do that. And what's, so you, there tends to just be a big draw because of the ease of play. It's not expensive to play. You don't need a tremendous amount of space to play. So you draw from more densely populated urban areas where some of the other sports like soccer, you need large fields, you need goals, you need uh, special shoes, you need, you know, so shin guards, there's, and you need enough kids to play. And when you go out to the sort of more suburban areas that are more dispersed, it's harder to just gather kids to play a game of pickup soccer where pickup basketball, it's just very easy and has always been prevalent in areas that are densely populated or urban areas. And you all have a much broader range of socioeconomics, so lower socioeconomics, it's very accessible as well as to the higher socioeconomics. So you just have a a greater range of uh, accessibility to the sport. Mm. And um, if I kind of remember back to when I was trying to understand basketball, basketball is. If I'm going, I'm going to go back another step to the untrained. European eye American sport seems to be designed for TV uh, so you have this idea of timeouts to create the drama right at the end you have um, the idea that players are completely and utterly kind of in interchangeable um, when did basketball become wasn't basketball the the sport which is really redefined really for TV in the early 1950s? Um, you know, basketball is there's some sports are sort of separated a little bit into sports that are of contiguous play, which is like soccer, basketball, and hockey. Mm -hmm. 
um, versus uh, sports that are non-contiguous, like baseball and American football, Mm -hmm. where you stop after every single play. Mm -hmm. So in order to make a lot of money where the media contracts do so dominate the economics of making money in sports in America, uh, it has to be media. So you do have the um, sort of media timeouts uh, in sports and, uh, you know, halftime quarters, basketball is in quarters rather than halftimes to sort of give more opportunities to be able to generate more revenues uh, during the game. So it's not just to build drama. It really is a, the business of sports and opportunities to generate revenues. Um, and the big difference, though, in basketball is you can foul in basketball and it stops the clock. Mm-hmm. You foul in soccer, uh, your clock's still ticking. Mm-hmm. 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 But one of the interesting things that I found out about basketball was that, um, and I'm going to get the 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 specific dates kind of a, a bit screwed up here so um forgive me but in the early 1950s um a basketball match uh or basketball game sorry uh could the, the result could be something like 5-7 and this is the early point of US TV uh, really being um a, a ubiquitous ubiquitous phenomena and I forget which network, but they turned around to the Basketball Federation of the time and said, you need to quicken up this game. And it's incredible. You look on YouTube of, of a basketball game in, let's say, 1948, 49, 1950, and people are walking with the ball and there's a lot of passing around and there's hardly any shots. And it was TV. It was a pressure of TV that said, we need more shots we need more points that absolutely changed that sport and, and, and changed it into be the to the phenomenon that, that, that it actually is and the rules. So whereby people were literally flying and, and slam dunking. And I can't think of um, a world sport outside of the US, which has been so influenced by football that it's unrecon so influenced by TV, sorry, that it's unrecognizable from its original form. And of course, something like soccer or rugby union or cricket has evolved and taken on some aspects yeah. of TV, but it's not unrecognizable in the way that basketball actually is. You were going to say something, basket- Travis. Yeah, basketball is different in, w- to all the others in the regard that basketball isn't that old. It was just kind of being figured out even by the 1950s. It was still a, a, a pretty new game. And baseball also changed. And also, TV is a driver. That, that is a fact. I don't want to, like, you know, counter-argue that. But also, my question would be, don't you think, I mean, and absolutely, you're right, that some of the rules were added or changed to make it faster space uh, paced. But my question is, don't you think that the first team that figured out that running is better than walking and the first athlete that found out how to dribble the ball while running instead of... I mean, that's a competitive advantage that if he does that one game, the next game, everybody's doing that kind of thing. Mm. And and so it did evolve quickly. I'm sure soccer... When did soccer... You know, kids have been kicking a ball around for eons, mm. but even that had to evolve slowly over time. No, you, And you're, basketball... So I, you're kind of comparing apples and oranges is what I think. It's 
just there's a lot of other things going on with basketball. No, what you, you said is also true. That you, TV you, was an influence. You you are, you are right in terms the of timing, the... the timing was right for TV and basketball, and so that's kind of what happened. Um, but there's a lot more going on too. I okay, mean. all right. But you are right. <laughs> just to give a very brief historical overview of uh, football and, and rugby um, was that up until about the 1820s, 1830s, there were, there were no rules with, uh, with what we now call football, but the convention was that you kicked it with your feet. That was yeah. the convention, but there were no rules. And then um, a boy called Webb Ellis at a school in rugby just picked the ball up one day and started running with it. And, and then rugby school codified rugby. You could, uh-huh. you could pick the ball up, but it was a round ball. But they said there were no rules beforehand that said you couldn't actually do that. But the convention was that you just didn't. You just kicked it with your feet. People just didn't. Yeah, you know, you, right. People just didn't. So I suppose that the evolution of the major sports which the rest of the world play have kind of happened pre-TV. Exactly. And, and, exactly. and again, you made a really uh, excellent point by saying that you know, the first team that decided you could actually run with the ball. So when you have association football, uh, which is um, the, the professional league start in the 1880s in England and Scotland, what mm-hmm. happened there, there was a team called Queen's Park in Scotland and they, they worked out that actually um, you could pass the ball. Up until that point, there you go. Yeah. What everybody did was you dribbled with the ball until you were tackled, and then you just ran uh-huh. with the ball until you were tackled. And uh-huh. what Queens, back and forth. Yeah, yeah, and what Queens Park figured out, and then they won the championship for two or three years on the trot was you could pass the ball before you were tackled. So yeah, it, it's a very very astute comment to make. Is that baseball actually... has parallel stories? Yeah, by the dozens. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. But but even basketball, and I just discussed this with um, some uh, NBA head coaches who were talking about the way the game has ebbed and flowed based on what actually contributes to winning the game. Things people try, things that are successful. You know, basketball became a game of strength when. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal really came on the scene and did something that really no one had ever seen, which was just be so strong in the middle and dunk a ball, and he was bigger and stronger than just any make it player. happen no matter what. Yeah, just bulldoze than any through. player we'd seen, and all of a sudden people yeah. are like, "Wow, a big guy can really, uh, you know, dominate and do well." And the flip side mm-hmm. happens as well because while he was great in the paint and could throw down a dunk, and it was very exciting. He also was terrible at shooting free throws. So there was another a counter strategy called Hack-A-Shack where they would just foul him every time because he would miss his yeah. free throws and that was a better strategy. So yeah. game strategy is going to evolve with whatever's successful. Now, interestingly enough, today in the NBA, it is going much more towards what they're starting to call small ball, which is actually a baseball term, but these head NBA coaches are starting to say, the more successful teams, and if your team is going to be winning over time, you will earn more revenues and your franchise will be worth more money. The more successful and valuable teams are the ones who have whose small ball play is better than the other guy's small balls. It's going away from the big giant players and more going like much a soccer team. towards <laughs> the, the sort of... Uh, what are they talking about in the NBA? They're talking about Stephen Curry 
who oh, has say, a, an outrageous shooting percentage at over 35 mm. feet. So it sort of ebbs and flows with whatever is being successful as the game evolves, as the people and the uh, who are playing the game evolve, and as the fans are now connecting to different parts of the game. Mm. Um, my, we did touch on this before, but uh, I, need, I need to come, come back to it again. Um, the franchise nature of American sport. Um, first off, Alison, could you give us a brief overview, stress on the word brief, because you're going to get lost in the weeds here, of how the different major sport leagues are set up uh, and then how franchises have been doled out. And then um, if I could then pass the ball over on to you, Travis, um, to answer this question, how does a city feel when its team or a franchise leaves. So first, Alison, give us an idea of actually the business of American sport, how it's actually kind of constructed, and then possibly give us a couple of examples of uh, franchises, famous franchises that have moved, you know, kind of Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, LA Dodgers type of thing. And then, um, Travis, could you tell us about, you know, what happened to that city or that town in its wake when a team has left? Right. Yeah. So in the U.S., the governing bodies of the sport have a lot of power. The NFL, the National Football League, uh, the governing organization has a significant amount of power over who can own what franchise. Uh, there are similar rules in the NBA uh, and in Major League Baseball. So that's something that it, the power structure of the sport is highly governed by and has susceptible to the power, which is pretty significant, of the leagues themselves. And in terms of the value of the franchise, now franchises, some of the franchises have become sort of hit a ceiling of value where you have uh, NBA teams like the Clippers um, that are being sold for $2 billion. Um, and franchises themselves become quite valuable over time and uh, at $2 billion. And because of the way the leagues only allow certain numbers of owners, there's really very few people in the world who can actually own a major league mm -hmm. sports franchise. And so because of that, the power structure and the business of sports is, is highly susceptible to the governing agents and then these just very small number of people who could even possibly be owners yeah you just nailed a key difference between europe and, and the u.s right there is that because the teams are limited in that way um there's you know because in, in europe like like royfield said there's there could be 30 layers so that that right there is the difference that's why there's only so many teams and they've become worth so much that yeah that that trumps the the loyalty of the fans or anything else hey, it's not a politics podcast no talking about the donald <laughs> here please but but that's oh, oh. pretty important um that because a team like san diego and this should lead right into i think travis uh and is that it's incredibly um important to, to know that San Diego, the Chargers have been threatening to move for 
probably 15 years. Um, they finally, there was a bid for a new stadium uh, in the Los Angeles area, but the NFL did not approve that move. So, San, so the Chargers are still going to play in San Diego at least another year, um, and that's because everything is susceptible to the approval of the league. So just because another uh, town or even someone has a lot of money and wants to move the team, they're still at the mercy of a league approval. There is one English example of this, and it's a stain on, on English sport. And I, and I say that with no irony um, meant at all. So one of the most romantic stories of the recent past of UK football, sorry, soccer, has been the rise of a team called Wimbledon. So you have, in London, there are, I think, 12 or 13 professional soccer teams. And it's one of the key differences between um, the UK and its football culture and even the rest of Europe. So we can sustain over 100 professional football teams, soccer teams, sorry, in England. That's how embedded football, sorry, soccer, I keep on saying this, soccer is within our culture. So... In the, in the late 1970s, you had a team called Wimbledon who'd always been um, an amateur team, a semi-professional team. So classically, you know, builders, uh, postmen, etc., who would get into the FA Cup and uh, occasionally play a professional team and do okay. By the end of the 1970s, they were promoted uh, or elected into the professional ranks of, of English football. Wimbledon went on a dizzy rise. So some 10 years after they were admitted into the professional league to play round-robin matches, so we're not just talking about the occasional knockout match in the FA Cup, they got to the they were in the top division of English football, which was called then Division 1, now would be called the Premier League, and they also won the FA Cup against Liverpool. And they were a, um, a ragtag bobtail team. And, and Wimbledon had this uh, romantic existence whereby their ground was ramshackle because they didn't have the tradition of being a, a footballing power, so to speak. They always had the smallest attendances. And I think the smallest attendance in the top flight of English football is something like 5,000 uh, attendees, and it's a Wimbledon match. But they managed for some 15 years to, devi- to defy footballing gravity and stop in that uh, top flight of English football. It's been longer than even 15 years. Um, by the early 2000s, Wimbledon had fallen on relatively hard times. And they. Um, this is the time when money, football, uh, sorry, TV money was really coming into English soccer. And they were just not an attractive proposition. And they fell out of the top flight of English football. So they went down into the second tier. And kind of at that point, they, uh, their new owner uh, tried to redevelop the ground. And the council, who was Merton Council, said you can't redevelop the ground. Because Wimbledon, as I'm sure you will know, is synonymous with another sport, tennis. And actually, right. it's an incredibly leafy rich bit of London and the last thing Merton Council wanted 
was a brand new soccer stadium there. So mm-hmm. they kept on putting loads of planning restrictions in their place. So the new owner of Wimbledon said, right, I'm going to move this team to Dublin in Ireland. Here is a massive market of football fans who all follow English football, but they support Manchester United or Liverpool. I'm going to move Wimbledon there. People lost their, excuse my, excuse my friends, their shit. They said, you cannot, you cannot do this. Not just the people of Wimbledon, but football fans all over the UK said, you cannot do this. It broke every rule, uh, written and unwritten, in UK football. So Dublin was was scrubbed off. We're going to move it. And he just named every town um, in and around London. It ended up on a place called Milton Keynes. And Milton Keynes is a new town. um, I want to say new town. That means it is kind of post-1945. It was designed as being an overflow town of London. And he says, we're going to move it to Milton Keynes. The the council in Milton Keynes said, yes, come. And I think uh, the rule of the 35-mile catchment area was either just broken or just made. I I, I forget. But either way, it was kind of fudged. And the last few games uh, where Wimbledon played at Plough Lane at Wimbledon, the fans stopped going. And, uh, well, actually, they'd stopped, they'd stopped playing in their traditional home of Wimbledon. They were playing at another stadium, uh, Crystal Palace or Charlton, for, for a few years beforehand because their, their ground wasn't up to league standards. As more money came into English football, Wimbledon was just this ramshackle team with a dreadful stadium which you, you, you couldn't go to. They had no fans, etc. Anyway, cutting a long story short, the team, the club moves to Milton Keynes and calls itself the Milton Keynes Dons, which is another anathema to uh, right. UK soccer fans. Because it sounded so American, Dons. The, what yeah, the hell's exactly. that? And it was obviously the aping of Wimbledon, and, and, and Wimbledon's right. nickname was the Dons. But people just said, this is not what English football is all about. The, the Milton Keynes Dons have been a relatively successful football team in their 12, 13 years um, existence and they're shunned by the rest of the footballing family. They're a weird team. However, and here's where the romance comes in. So, the fans of Wimbledon FC when that move to Milton Keynes happened said, no, we're going to form our own team called AFC Wimbledon went down to the local park in Merton, which is the borough of Wimbledon, and said, anybody that wants to try out for AFC Wimbledon can come. 2,000 men of all levels of physical fitness turned up. After two days, they whittled it down to 35 players that formed AFC Wimbledon. That was approximately 2002-2003. By 2010-11, approximately, they were back in the professional football leagues. They went through every league super fast. Um, See, we can't do that. Exactly. They went through every league super fast. They had the biggest attendances. They had the biggest attendances in all of the amateur leagues because all of their old fans just turned up. And because they're from a leafy bit of London, which is basically Stockbroker Belt, (laughs) 
they had the best financial advisors. They managed to then circumnavigate planning laws. They've ended up back in the borough of Merton. And now they're in the fourth tier of English football. And they're kind of, kind of semi-rooted there, which is kind of really their, their level, considering mm-hmm. the catchment area that they're in. But mm-hmm. it is the most romantic... And I can't think of a better example to to explain and illustrate the difference between Europe because these things happen I got, in, in I got Hockenheim. There's Hockenheim like that, in but... Germany. There's Hockenheim in Germany. It's a similar thing. There are so many yeah. small little French French towns that have professional football teams and stuff. But go on, go on, go on Travis. Go on, give us well, your example. Say, have you heard of the Zurich Grasshoppers? Yes, Grasshoppers in Zurich. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, they they have another story. Like their their stadium got torn down or whatever, and they they didn't get like Zurich again didn't want to zone for a new one, and so what they do is so they play their games at another stadium. The other you know there's two other uh, soccer teams in Zurich, and so they go to the other stadium, but the fans all gather where the old stadium used to be, and then kind of you know pretend to look when they all get there, they all kind of pretend to look around and be like, oh, I guess our stadium's not here anymore, and they all together march through town and and go watch the game. Wow, like you know that's like yeah, that doesn't we don't have that sense of loyalty anymore anymore. Like when I would say, um, so if you go back and you like specifically talk about the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers or some of the old teams that did grow organically from way back in the day. Um, and then evolved and so forth. But the ones that were deep rooted in their communities, they shed tears when when the the owner decided to move the teams. That's ancient history. So nowadays, I think it's just Americans know that it can happen, and you know people are happy when it when a team leaves. But it's and it's always a mini scandal. But clearly, the 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 NFL and the you know the major league major league baseball and and all of them have made the calculation and said it's worth it. You know the cost of teams um, because of that it's it's limited. It's a scarce resource. Unlike the UK to some degree, London has twelve teams, like you said. You know, um, so just because of that, people know it's going to happen. And there's a, it's a mini scandal every time, even with the the chart the Rams and the you know everything that's that's happening recently. And but it, everybody knows they're going to get over it. The NFL knows it's no big deal, and you know it's a small little bump in in famdom and, right. and that kind of thing. Well, if you even look at, I think one of the most devastating NFL moves was uh, the loss of the Cleveland Browns. And what's interesting to me about that was they became the Baltimore Ravens. But then there was a new team of the Cleveland Browns, but all the history of the team apparently was moved to the Baltimore Ravens, but now they have this new team of the Cleveland Browns. That whole story, and because that was a very working class grassroots type team uh one of the you know older teams in the league yeah um there was a lot of emotion around that um but it always sort of was fascinating to me looking at that as any sort of case study because i don't understand how you just move a team's history to another city which That's is exactly the, what yeah. happened like they took all their trophies they took all their you know all their it old was stuff very bizarre um, it's like and, yeah but on oh, the geez. same at the same notion, I don't think people realize how much movement happened in the NBA. The Los Angeles Lakers are called the Lakers because they used to be right. from Minneapolis with a Utah lot of lakes. Jazz. Utah Jazz. Utah Jazz. From New Orleans. <laughs> Where's Jazz? Yep. Oh, so, I, I, I didn't work that one out. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's like it, the what name the heck? stayed, but yeah. I think the notion of having another city to go to and place, you know, because they had again more money to offer, better stadium to offer, better Which resources. How sad is that? I mean, they could get, I mean, you know, they could recruit players yeah. better. They could, I mean, there were just the the whole sort of supply chain, if you will, of sports, uh, you know, and. Again, the the romance has sort of been knocked out of it because the financing of it has become so prohibitive. Yeah. There's just well, there's not and, room and for like the romantic grasp. Well, you also said earlier that it's very regionalized. Of you know, baseball is from Southern California and Atlanta, and mm-hmm. and that also. So I mean, I'm from Oregon originally, and we got the the so we got the Trailblazers in Portland, and that's it. Then we got you know the the. A um, couple of teams in Seattle, like the C- the Seahawks, are our closest team, and most Oregonians kind of hate them because you know they're not Oregonian; they're they're Washingtonian. Um, so I mean, it's just like so we don't have an NFL team, period, and we probably never will because um, but, Portland is, is a small city. It's not you right, know. but you have a very successful MLS team, a major yes. league soccer team, and that was one of the biggest pieces of advice back in the mid '90s to MLS on how to avoid the pitfalls of North American Soccer League was put the teams into markets where one of the three major league sports in the U.S. doesn't exist. Mm. Yep. So Absolutely. if you look at the most uh, successful franchises of major league soccer, they're in those cities where the media is thrilled to have another uh, major league oh, yeah. sport Columbus Crew. on television. Yeah, Columbus Crew. There you go. You, you, you can, I hadn't thought of that, Alison. And, and actually, um, the, the, is it the Portland Timbers, isn't it? What? It's the Timbers, yeah. Yeah. They are one of the coolest hipster football teams across the globe to support. And European football fans look at the Portland Timbers and actually say, these are real football fans. You have flares there. You sing. They sing songs, etc. That's just Oregon. Oh, yeah. 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 It's uh, <laughs> you, 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 you. The hipsters over there in Portland, Oregon, you, you know how to support a football team. Now, and on that yeah, note, that doesn't God. surprise me at all. Yeah, right. Yeah, but yeah. the other side is San Diego. It's sort of shocking that there isn't a major league soccer team here because we have so many fans from south of the border that are just diehard soccer fans. How we haven't been able to make the transition, and this was something I actually discussed with some of the folks at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference who were talking about how to fill seats in stadiums and. The challenge of San Diego is there are so many other things to do because we are a city without uh, NBA. We have Major League Baseball, and for now we have Mm -hmm. NFL, but we don't have NBA. So soccer would seemingly be perfect. One of the biggest challenges is, though, the weather here is pleasant all year round. You can go to the beach almost every single day for free. You've got hiking. You've got the zoo. The availability of substitutes are yeah. so plentiful here versus Allison, I need Kansas to jump City in. Or, uh, uh, as, or... as, the, as the host of this roundtable talk, there's no substitute for football, for soccer. <laughs> there absolutely I, isn't. As a huge fan, oh, I, I don't know. agree with you there. No, no. But I think I think the US who have, are more fair-weathered fans. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And on that note, uh, folks... And uh, unfortunately, the availability of substitutes uh, in America matters. 
and yeah. as part of why certain things haven't been able to, uh, certain sport hasn't gained the traction that uh, logically you think it should. Yeah. So I think we've uh, completely concluded that soccer is the most perfect sport ever, and that the <laughs> and that the the virus that is that is soccer. And let's just call it for what it is. It's a sport which is played primarily with your feet and with a round spherical object, so it is football, um, has now infected the United States. And it's just a matter of time before it wins over the NFL uh, and, and basketball. Alison, um, listen, um, thank you for joining us. Travis, thank you for joining us. I know Heather had to depart, but Alison, if people want to catch up with you on social media, how can they do that? Uh, they can find me. My Twitter account is at A.B. Gerlach, which is A-B-G-E-R-L-A-C-H. Uh, I can also be found at unapologeticcapitalist.com. And my email there is the UC at unapologeticcapitalist.com. And I would welcome any comments. And, and just quickly tell us, um, what, are you, what are you working on podcast-wise at the moment? My current podcast is The Unapologetic Capitalist, and it is a business forum to talk about how to build value in your venture. And uh, ironically, the current uh, most recent episode that is up is talking about how great leaders uh, take responsibility and bad leaders place blame. And Travis, now you need to be brief because I know you do about three dozen (laughs) podcasts, but if anybody wants to catch up with you on social media... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. How can they do that? And then tell us what you're up to podcast-wise at the moment. Yeah, so um, you can find me at podcastnick.com. That's podcastnik.com. And so funny enough, the, the last episode I just did, I, I mean, I do, I do six podcasts. You just go to that website, you'll see them. Um, but the last one I did was for one where I, I expl- like 
you you mentioned exporting American sports to the rest of the world. Why doesn't that happen? Well, I'm trying. My last episode was in German explaining America, the rules of American baseball and kind of some of the appeal around it and, you know, trying to give Germans a feel of what it was like and understand the game. Um, so, yeah, so it just kind of it, it that fits to what we're talking about today. But, yeah, so all, all kinds of shows out there about Germany, states, all all kinds of stuff. So Czech Republic. Um, yeah, podcastnick.com. Come and find me. Fantastic. And if you're interested in my witterings uh, on Twitter, I'm at Royfield, that's spelled R-O-I for India, F-I-E-L-D. Um, and currently I've just put out a new show uh, on 10 American presidents on the sub uh, kind of series which I'm doing, which is 10 American elections, which is uh, what is a caucus. Uh, you can catch up with uh, my first podcast, which is How Jamaica Conquered the World, which looks at the spread of Jamaican cultural influence. And sometime soon, I will get round to doing another 1,001 Conversations. Uh, but that has been Roundtable Talk. Uh, these shows will go out ad hoc, as of when we've got something which we feel we absolutely need to talk about. Um, catch up with the rest of the podcast on the Agora Podcast Network. It's goodbye from me over in London, and it's goodbye from my two American friends, the other side of the pond. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind, where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. Our network of shows includes... American Biography. The Bohemian Podcast. How Jamaica Conquered the World. The History of the Papacy. The History of England. The History of Alchemy Podcast. Mid-Atlantic. When Diplomacy Fails. 1001 Conversations. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. History of Anglo-Saxon England. The secret cabinet from Germany. Ten American presidents. The History of Germany podcast. The Agora Podcast Network.com. Listen to Agora today.